0: Hello, welcome to this podcast previewing our two speakers in the annual Warwick-RIPE debate. Uh, RIPE is an academic journal called the Review of International Political Economy and the debate speaks to current issues in this field. The first of our speakers is Professor Philip Cerny, Professor Emeritus of Global Affairs at the Universities of Manchester and Rutgers in the United States. He is the author of Rethinking World Politics, a Theory of Transnational Pluralism second of our speakers is Professor Janart Scholter, professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Warwick. And he's the author of Building Global Democracy, Civil Society and Accountable Global Governance. Interviewing uh, these two professors today will be two of our postgraduate research students. Uh, The first of these is David Weber, PhD student researching British International Development Policy under New Labour. The second of these is Zhu Wang, a uh, PhD student researching China's changing role in the international financial architecture. So Dave, if you'd like to kick us off with the first question.
1: Professor Sonny, Um Hello. I've just sort of had a, a an, just read a, really an outline of your book. Um, what what was your thinking behind it, really? What's the main themes? What What's the main sort of area of research that you were looking to interrogate there?
2: Well, it's... Part of a long process that probably started when I was an undergraduate and got interested in theories of pluralism and neopluralism. Now, if you know international relations, uh, international relations has for the last God knows how many years focused around the concept of uh, the state. And, you know, the the state is uh, a unit. Uh, Waltz called it a unit actor. And that the international relations is about the relations between these unit actors. Whereas, if we take a domestic political system, you've got all sorts of different interests, you've got all sorts of different, what, are, what used to be called value groups, uh, you get different sectors of the bureaucracy and all sorts of triangular relationships and that sort of thing. You get a much more complex political process. It isn't just about states interacting with each other. And it seemed to me that. Um, there are a number of factors that made made states into what seemed like these unit actors but they never really were that much unit actors and now with globalization there um, you know through trade and finance and communications and uh migration and all sorts of things that cut across borders uh there's like a whole new political process out there which is much, which is getting closer to what you you expect from a, from a, the domestic political system. I don't know if that's enough, but you know that that's yeah. sort of the basic yeah. motivation. It, it appears that um,
1: your existing, but it ties in quite nicely with uh, your existing work on on public policy, particularly within the, the domestic context. But you sort of recontextualize that within the global sphere. Um, Was that something you were sort of trying to achieve or was that something that sort of evolved sort of naturally, I guess?
2: I think it's kind of evolved naturally. As uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Peter Hall at Harvard University, once said to me, said that my take on international politics, which, by the way, I've been doing since I I was a graduate student, uh, my take on international politics is different from many other people's because I actually started out most of my career as a specialist in comparative politics. So I'm bringing the lessons of comparative politics into my my attempt to re to rethink, as the title of the book goes, internet world politics. I don't like calling it international relations because yeah. it's not just about between nations; it's about world politics um, at a, a number of different levels. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, it strikes me that your existing work
1: it it's, uh, draws on the work of Charles Lindblum, um who who listeners might uh, recognize as, as being sort of um, the, the eminent scholar, I guess, of, of the sort of states and markets, the, the neo-plural um, uh, theory, I guess. Um, and once you tie that into your existing work on on public policy, uh, to what extent do you think that this book uh, in particular um, extends sort of these these type of debates?
2: Oh, yeah, I think so very much, because, uh, I mean, the, the thing about Lindblom and... Also to some extent now uh, Robert Dahl in in the eighties the 70s and eighties um, is that they were they were in between the old pluralists uh, I won't take a lot of time discussing what the old pluralists did but it was like you know a very nice little political market system within a democracy and uh, you know the the competition of it the peaceful competition of interest groups ended up being sort of good for everybody in the end um, and in, this, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Marxists and the radicals who said, no, it's a class system, and you've got a hegemonic ruling class that controls the way the system works. Neopluralism said, well, it's not a class system, but it is a class system, in, in the sense that you... you uh, there's, I think the, Lindblom's famous phrase was the privileged position of business, because those actors, those plural actors, and they are plural, I mean, they, they disagree with each other, They're not part of a, uh, you know, a single homogeneous class system, uh, and they they often compete and fight with each other. Uh, But on the other hand, you know, some have more resources than others, and they, you know, tend to win the argument more of the time. So neo pluralism is is, I thought I've always thought was something something very interesting that needed to be developed and there's a an, an author i mean i won't go on much more on this one but there's an author called andrew mcfarland who was writing about american politics uh, came out with a book called neopluralism in in 2004 uh in which he kinds of tries to tries to bring this up up to date and i found his framework analysis very useful in exte- in extending what lindblom was saying to the international sector but uh, again you know i don't want to go on too long <laughs> about that right now
0: yeah.
2: yep. This is uh, going to be my,
1: my final question. What, what sort of future avenues of research do you think that you, your new book in particular um, opens up?
2: Well, I think that um, this is probably most relevant to talk about one of the chapters, which, which is about what I call the emergence of pentangles. In domestic public policy, uh, there was a, for a long time, especially in American studies, of a discussion of something called iron triangles. Basically said that you can you can understand policy by looking at the ongoing regularized relationships between politicians, bureaucrats, and interest groups, particularly the stronger interest groups, and it's sort of almost like a bit of micro corporatism, in that sense. What I'm saying is that if you add in an international public sector like you know international organizations, and you add in an international private sector, which also has um, both a, a civil society dimension, but also obviously a, a you know capitalist firms, multinational firms, international finance dimension. You've got a number of sort of complex, uh, double triangular relationships, you might say, pentangle or maybe even six sided relationships that cut across states, uh, that create webs of power that get around states, and and you know, like the financial markets in particular. The key thing that McFarland said is that the the actual um, Configuration of these relations varies from interest area to inter- sorry issue area to issue area, so you have to look at the way in which state actors, international organization actors, interest groups, value groups interact in particular issue areas and identify those. I mean, it get it can get quite complex, but on the other hand, it it gives you a way in because you say, well, the environment is an issue area, finan- finance is an issue area, trade can be an issue area, but there can also be sectors like. Like you comparing my, my favorite is to, is to compare something like uh, finance or the environment with something like um, which a lot has been written about, like commercial aircraft, where you've got two big firms that control, basically control the world in terms of the big commercial aircraft, and they're both supported by the state, so there's like a, a transnational corporatism there almost. So some, some of it's fragmented and some of it's centralized.
1: Professor Cerny, thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: Okay, if we can now hand over to uh, Zhu Wang, who will be interviewing Professor Jana Scholter.
3: Hello, Professor Yanar Um It is good to have you here. I know that you have a forthcoming book called Building Global Democracy, Civil Society and Accountable Global Governance, which focuses on the role played by civil societies in filling the gap in global governance. Could you tell us what draws your attention to this field? Do the civil societies raise the accountability and legitimacy of global governance uh, institutions, and how do they do it?
4: Okay, thanks very much for the chance to talk about this. Um, You're right also to say right away the title has a question mark in it. So it's Building Global Democracy, question mark, civil society and accountable global governance. So it's not a book that is preaching the virtues of civil society as an automatic. Uh, bringer of democracy to global governance but it's actually asking the question is it so Um, because we've seen a very large growth and expansion of global governance institutions and arrangements over the last uh, half century Um, Mm -hmm. it's often said that the democratic credentials of that global governance are very weak Mm -hmm. and then it's often also said that civil society is the hero heroine on horseback that runs in and saves the day for us And many cosmopolitan democracy theorists and many liberal internationalist theorists have told us that the civil society is going to bring us this, fill the democratic gap in global governance. So, what we did in this book is actually undertake 13 (coughs) case studies across different global governance institutions of various kinds, some of them intergovernmental, so the usual Mm -hmm. suspects. World Trade Organization, United Nations, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and Mm -hmm. so on. But then we also looked at transgovernmental processes. So we did a study of the G8, the Group of Eight. And we did some studies of interregionalism, the Mm Asia-Europe meeting. We did a study of private global governance, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. And we looked at multi-stakeholder arrangements, like the... um, Uh, a global fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. So we tried to take global governance institutions in a wide variety of ways. Mm -hmm. And then um, we asked, of all of these cases, are citizen action groups, business associations, trade unions, NGOs of various kinds, faith-based organizations, think tanks, Mm
2: -hmm.
4: are they making global governance arrangements more accountable to the people they affect? And we said, are they making them more transparent? Are they consulting people better? Are these groups, civil society groups, bringing more independent evaluation of the global governance arrangements? And are they getting those global governance arrangements to institutions to correct their mistakes? So accountability was about transparency, consultation, independent evaluation, and correction, redress. So we went through all of these and said, well, what does civil society achieve? Does civil society give us democratic accountability? And as a good academic answer, it was... Sometimes, maybe, because, (laughs) if, and, but, (laughs) Um, which then yielded a 45-page conclusion, um, (laughs) which will probably drive any reader away, but never mind. But uh, no, but the answer was messy, uh, as as, as you might agree. So we said, yes, there are many instances when civil society interventions in global governance have brought greater transparency, consultation, evaluation, redress. But it's not as much as you would think. On the whole, there could be a lot more. So it's not, and it's not automatic, just because civil society groups are there doesn't mean that you get more accountability. So the fact that they show up doesn't necessarily bring a result. But more critically, we also ask questions, which civil society? Accountability to whom? Mm -hmm. And accountability for what purpose? Because if you looked at which civil society, we found in a lot of cases that it was the business groups, they were having far more voice say than the social movements and NGOs mm-hmm. and we found that on the whole groups based in the global north were having far more influence and access mm-hmm. than groups based in the global south and that if you looked at the gender profile the class profile the race profile and so on that many of the same inequalities that you see in society at large were reproduced in the so-called global civil society So there was a big question about accountability for whom. Um, And then there was a question, accountability for what? For what purpose? We were looking for accountability for democratic accountability, to, to advance global governance arrangements, accountability to the people whose lives they affect. Yeah, but it might have been accountability to corporate power. And it might have been accountability to donors from rich states. Um, so, anyway, the whole equation of civil society and accountable global governance ended up being a pretty messy one.
3: The next question is more broad. It's about the study of civil societies. Um, how has the study of civil society's role in global governance evolved in the past 20 years? Has there been any new observations?
4: Yeah, you're right to say 20 years. It's about 20 years. The first research on civil society involvement in global governance arrangements was published in the Mm mid-1990s. So the research probably started in the early 1990s. And it's true that from the early 1990s is when the major expansion of global governance engagements with citizen action groups occurred. So the 20-year time frame is, is right. I think initially this was greeted with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, I mean, initially this was seen, here are citizen action coming up against this neoliberal global governance, Mm -hmm. uh, all of the oppressions, inequalities, injustices, poverty, uh, perpetuation, and so on. And again, this is our knight in shining uh, shining political, global political armor. Um, I think with, again, with time, the sort of tone that's taken in this book, which is much more sober, I think is come has come 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 to bear. Um but some people have gone to the other extreme, you know, they've so they've they've gone to the point of saying, Oh NGOs are all unaccountable and you know, and that's that's kind of thrown babies out with bathwaters as it were. Um because there's a lot of good work that's done as well. And I think this particular book tries to be more more balanced. The empirical work though is still quite limited. The work on global governance institutions outside the usual suspects. The main intergovernmental organizations mm-hmm. there's not much work done there, so that, that this book actually looks at global gov- civil society and global governance arrangements beyond the mm-hmm. Bretton Woods institutions the u n and the WTO. I think that's not happened very much. Um, we need more work though that looks at the activities are uh, coming from loosely called the Global South. Uh, a lot of it is still you know, people running the transatlantic corridor and looking at all the main big NGOs and not necessarily seeing what's uh, happening on the ground in the wider world. So we certainly need more work of, of, uh, of, that, of that kind. Um, and more work on civil society beyond NGOs. Because civil society, although the World Bank and the like would like civil society to be equal to NGOs because that makes their job easier. <laughs> modern bureaucratic organizations just like them. And there's a lot of other activi- activism out there. Uh, amongst faith groups, amongst informal social movements, amongst uh, informal and alternative labour movements, and a lot of other activism that uh, would be helped to gain more influence if researchers also gave it more attention.
3: Okay. And the fa- final question. In the study of global governance and its accountabilities, do you think we should pay as much attention to civil societies as to other more formal forms of governance?
4: The work and the focus that I've had in my own research on civil society has been, because I think it's an important quarter to look at, and because I think, on the whole, the field has not given these arenas of political action as much attention as it could. This is not to say, of course, though, that you don't look at where most people are looking and that you don't look at the other activity. So very much as as, as Phil, in his book, reaffirms the importance of states amongst the plural actors. And indeed, as, as often the most resourced and the most powerful actors, likewise here, to look at this I- issue about civil society and accountable global governance is not to say don't look at states. Uh, and indeed, the book itself looks at the interaction with governments very often, looks at the interaction with media, mass media as actors as well, um, and tries to have that plural look at action uh, in, in world politics, which I think we need to have.
2: Uh, listening to on our, um, it strikes me that uh, one thing that's that's important here is there isn't an international state, there isn't a world government, so you don't have that kind of centripetal or centralized set of institutions that you have within the domestic political system. But that means that in fact it's much more open. There are ma- many more spaces where civil, what he calls civil society groups, what I would think of as interest groups and value groups, different levels of governance, uh, kind of interact, and it, it's a it's a fluid process. As as Arthur Bentley said in his original book, The Process of Government, 1908, it's a very fluid process, and we're watching it to see how it develops.
0: Okay, okay, thank you both um, for outlining those fascinating research agendas. Um, just to let listeners know, a podcast will be available of the subsequent debate where Professor Cerny and Professor Schulter outline these agendas in in more detail and. Uh, talk a bit more about their, their overlaps and potential critiques of one another. Um, but for now, uh, I'd just like to thank Professor Philip Cerny, Professor Jan Schult, David Weber, Ju Wang, for a fascinating discussion. Thanks a lot.